Uh, when Fred Craddock was a um, boy, he remembers sitting in church front row on a pew, maybe something like this one, maybe you recognize that pew. And he was young and he was there in his Sunday best and his little legs were swinging back and, and forth and, and he remembers hearing about preachers and teachers talking about a whole variety of things and about what, really what it means to live as a Christian. What, what did it really mean to live as a, as a wholehearted, devoted disciple of Jesus? And he heard stories about people like, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, serving the poor in the slums of Calcutta. Wow. And he heard about, you know... Um, um, Albert Schweitzer, who was a medical missionary, and he was a great pianist, and he'd put on these Bach concerts and would raise money, and all the money would go to these, these hospitals in Africa. Uh, or people like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and this is you know, you know, so powerful in the civil rights movement. Uh, and he, he remembers sitting there and hearing stories like this of what it meant to live like a Christian, and he thought, it's a shame you can't be a Christian in this town. Nobody is chasing or imprisoning or killing Christians. In other words, he thought that because these were the only examples of what it meant to live by faith, that that's what it was about. And if, and if you didn't make the six o'clock news or if you didn't make it into a history book, you weren't a real Christian. He's like, it's too bad it's just ordinary, normal people like myself can't follow Jesus. But of course, that's not true. Primarily, Christianity is about what Christ has done for us, not what we have done for him. And yes, we are to make sacrifice, but sometimes if we only hear about these powerful big things that make the six o'clock news, we can kind of have our thinking skewed a little bit and not always in a positive way about what it means to follow Jesus. Because all Christians have a special commission. Now let's look at the word for a second, commission. Now the word commission, when you break it down, means with, com, mission. With a mission. Now, when we think about that, <clears throat> we quite often think about uh, Matthew 28. So the church historically is called Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission. The Great Commission. So Jesus there, he's after his resurrection. It's before he departs physically uh, from his disciples. And he's standing there, and he says, beginning at verse 20, all authority in heaven, uh, sorry, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So with that in mind, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? We know this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so that's very important. That's very powerful. Historically, that's called the Great Commission. But there is, in John 20, a lesser-known commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, and that's a, that's a phrase that we're going to focus on today. And as we kind of get our minds around that, I want to introduce this idea of being an ordinary missionary. Ordinary missionary. Say it with me. Ordinary missionary. Because this contrast, this thinking that sometimes we have that a missionary is only someone who has done something that will make a history book or someone who goes off into a faraway land and that's good and important and people do that. Charitable project or to share and show the message of Jesus, that's so, so vitally important. But I want to introduce this phrase, ordinary missionary, rooted in what Jesus himself tells us in this other commission in John 20, and think, how might we as ordinary people, and ordinary doesn't mean not special, it just means everyday people like you and me, paying bills, you know, going to school, taking the calculus test, uh, having to work and retire, all these sorts of things, how might we think of ourselves as ordinary missionaries, a life of purpose in our own situations? 
So to explore this, we're going to open uh, John chapter 20. And uh, last week, we, we read through the first 18 verses of, of John 20. So we're going to pick it up at verse 19, okay? Reading from the ESV. So you recall that last week, we talked about the resurrection, right? And so now we're talking about, okay, what happens next? Because that really gets a lot of the attention. But what happens next? And so there's a couple different sections in this text, but we're going to go through. You can follow along with your Bible or on the screen or with the Westminster Church app. Here we go. On the evening of that day, so that day is Sunday, resurrection day, right? On that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And again, remember, as it is often used in the Gospel of John, Jews doesn't mean all Jews. We're specifically thinking of that religious leadership who was opposing uh, and fighting against Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Okay, now a couple of things. The context is fear. So they're gathered there. You know, Some people have said that they've seen Jesus, but they have also witnessed and seen all this horrible stuff happen to Jesus, like betrayal. Um, they have left him. There's this, this very public crucifixion, the, the flogging the, you know, with the whips, and we talked about that on Good Friday, and, 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 and skin being torn from flesh, and then the actual crucifixion. So they're probably in some sort of sense of trauma. All this is going to, not only that, but they've had these hopes. This is Jesus, their friend. He is the Messiah, Savior, Lord. And then perhaps they've misunderstood what was to go on, and maybe their dreams are dashed. And Jesus told them that he was going to be crucified, but they always seem to wrestle with that fact. And so when it actually happens, it really takes them back. And since, you know, there was this hate poured out on Jesus, and they were his followers, maybe they're thinking, we're next. And so they're locked there for fear, and Jesus comes. Somehow, he appears to them. He comes. We're not given the exact details. He says, peace be with you, which is a wonderful greeting. So a couple of things. First of all, it's the standard Jewish greeting. Peace be with you. I wish God's best upon you. Um, Also, it's a response to the very real fear that they were experiencing. So they're afraid. So it's like, hey, peace be with you. So he comes. Peace be with you. Not only that, it's a reminder that Jesus gives ultimate peace, so there's multiple layers of meaning in this greeting. Peace be with you. He's the one that offers them peace with God. And the fact that now the resurrection has occurred, Jesus stands there victorious, he is vindicated, and we kind of can't help but think way back to those prophecies in Isaiah 9, verse 6, about the coming Messiah. For to you, you know, a child will be born, etc., and he will be called the Prince of Peace. So he's victorious and vindicated, and now he, he shares this peace with them. And so I think there's a lot going on in this. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They're glad, so sadness is turned to gladness. So now they, they're seeing him, it's like, this, this is really happening. They're seeing him, and maybe with all these dreams dashed, all this hurt in their own lives, and now all of a sudden they realize that, that that is actually him. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. It's the second time we've heard that. And then here it is. Here's the commission, okay? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is a very enigmatic passage. So a couple of things. First of all, as the Father has sent him into the world on this, this divine rescue mission to restore and renew all things through Christ, he is sending them out into the world to continue the message and the mission. Now, he doesn't just do this you know, on their own strength, there's something very profound happening here. He breathes on them. 
and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's just a very enigmatic thing to go on. And if a part of your brain is thinking, that sounds vaguely familiar, I think it is. Details matter, right? So if you think back to chapter uh, 2, verse 7 of the book of Genesis, God breathes life into Adam, becomes a living being. Okay, so if you can think of, Adam is the man of first creation, Jesus is the man of new creation, and as such, he breathes the Holy Spirit onto his followers. So I think we're supposed to have that kind of event and that illusion in our background. Receive the Holy Spirit. And so, they've got the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God coming to dwell within his people and there to do the work out of his power and his goodness. So it's not because they're great and they're moral superstars, because they're not. They're just coming out of a place of fear. They're just coming out of a place where many of them have abandoned Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit is given to them that they might continue the message and the mission of Jesus. And I think this is also a foretaste or foreshadowing. So later on in Acts chapter 2, an event called Pentecost, remember that? It's often called the birthday of the church. So the Holy Spirit comes down in a profound and powerful way on the believers, and they're gathered there in Jerusalem and the tongues and everything else. So that's a dramatic moment, and from there, the the message and mission of Jesus starts to explode around the earth. I think what's happening here on the heels of the resurrection is a bit of a foretaste of that. Verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold from any, it is withheld. Now, this verse causes trouble for some people because they feel, wait a second, um, they shouldn't have that authority. If, if they say someone's forgiven, uh, they're forgiven. If they say they're not forgiven, they're not. only God can do that. And, and that is true. So I think when you look at the wider context and the passages, I think what is happening is this. They're to go out and to share the message about Jesus, which at its heart is a message of forgiveness and peace. And if people respond, they will be forgiven. If they don't, they will not be forgiven. Some of the verbs here in this verse are in the passive. So therefore, God is the one who is doing the forgiving. And, and, the, and the disciples are messengers, okay? Okay, continuing, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, some of your translations will say Didymus, but it means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now Thomas in the other Gospels, he's listed among the apostles. We don't learn much about him, so it's great that in the Gospel of John we learn more about him. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. <clears throat> now, he's just, he, he, I, I think, I'm just guessing here, but I think just his, his hopes and his dreams have been dashed. He can't be let down again. You mean we put all our hope in Jesus? He's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, Savior, Teacher, all these things. He was crucified for goodness sakes. You get the sense that his heart is broken. He's like, no, I know, I, disciples, friends, I love you. We've been journeying with one another. I just, I just can't go through this. I'm not sure if I believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. So this is a week later. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, for the third time the phrase, peace be with you. That's the third time this phrase has come up. Then he said to Thomas, why? Because Jesus knows what he's been thinking. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Okay? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. 
And so Thomas, he's been going through this doubt and this uncertainty, and at start he knew Jesus as a man, but he has his eyes, the eyes of his heart slowly opened as he goes through this journey with Jesus, and now seeing him risen with nail marks in his hands, with a, with a place where the spear went into his side, he sees Jesus, he's talking, the corpse is alive, now he comes and he offers this high, what we call a Christological confession, a confession about the divinity of who Jesus is. Is. And I just think this is a powerful scene. There's a, there's a beautiful painting. Some of you will have seen this. So the Italian painter Caravaggio painted this in the early 1600s. <clears throat> it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And there he is, and it's, <clears throat> it's amazing. Like, that's Thomas. He's, he's putting his finger into the side of Jesus. And the detail is so, like, it's so realistic. You can see the skin of the wound mark actually peeling back. Uh, from Jesus. And I just love this. He's, he's amazed. He's inquiring. And he's just about to come to this powerful confession about who Jesus is, my Lord and my uh, God. When I was in university, I was going to a church and the preacher was uh, Cameron Brett was his name. And I remember one time he, he taught about this story and he said, you know, Thomas has given a bad rap over history. He's known as Doubting Thomas. Right, simply doubting Thomas, or so and so is being a doubting Thomas. He said, you know, he's gotten a bad rap because here he says this ultimate Christological confession, this insight about who Jesus is. We should remember him as believing Thomas. He is believing Thomas. Here's another side historical note that I think lends uh, a bit more insight to this passage. Towards the end of the first century, the Roman emperor is Domitian, and <clears throat> Domitian wanted to be known. Uh, Word has it that he wanted to be called Lord and God as, as the Roman emperor. Now, if you were someone reading this gospel and you see that, that Jesus is confessed to be my Lord and my God, I think what's happening, there's also a subversive political current here going on. Now, wait a second. The real ruler isn't the Roman emperor Domitian. It's Jesus. So I think this would have encouraged many of those early followers. And then he says, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this is for us. So Jesus, several times throughout the Gospel of John, is thinking about us. He's thinking about future believers, especially in that great high priestly prayer that we discussed in John chapter 17. Here, because he knows that people are going to come to believe in him who haven't had the opportunity of Thomas. They haven't been able to see physically the evidence. Thomas is this modern person. We want evidence. We, we won't be able to see the nail marks in his hands or the spear marks in his side. So he says, reaching to the future, blessed are those who will come to believe who have not seen. That's us. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? It means to receive favor from God. Favor from God, okay? Think of the favors you've received in your life. Thanks for the ride home. That's a great favor. Thanks for helping me with my science homework. Hey, thanks for getting me that job interview. Those are nice things. All of them pale in comparison to the eternal life and forgiveness and peace of God that we have in Christ. People will come to believe in the future who have not seen. They will be blessed. Verse 30, last two verses of this chapter. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, so here's the purpose of the whole book. These things are written so that you may believe, trust, have faith in, that Jesus is the Christ, which also means Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, what? You may have life in his name. 
So that by believing you may have life in his name. So uh, the way the word uh, life is used <clears throat> sometimes means this life, and there's a certain character and quality to the life, purpose with God, peace in God, but also eternal. It's something that extends beyond death, and this is where we think of eternal life. And, of course, Jesus' own words back at chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, um, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the purpose of the book. So we end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so I want us to return to that phrase, ordinary missionary, with which we began. As a reminder, ordinary doesn't mean not special. It just means everyday people like you and me, so that one day as we stand before God, you know, it's about being faithful, not famous. It's about praising God, not being popular. Okay, so we're just going about our everyday lives. So that is what is meant by the word normal. Now, when it comes to the word missionary, I'm going to focus us on where we already are because so often we think of someone who's sent to a far-flung place and that is a missionary, absolutely. But the mission field is actually, for many of us, here. A friend of mine was in Toronto about five, six years ago. And he told me this story. He was walking down the streets and someone came up to him, someone who he later learned was from a different country, and said, hey, can, can I tell you about Jesus? <clears throat> and he said, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'd love to talk about Jesus. And he found out and through the course of the conversation, that person was a missionary from another country who was sending missionaries to Canada because belief has reached such a low. Think of that for a second. People sending missionaries to Canada to hear and respond to the message about Jesus. Okay? So, what is our commission? Let's put up verse 21. This is succinct. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, when I think sending you, our default thinking through history has often been to some place where we don't happen to be already. And where that is true sometimes, it's not necessarily true all of the time. And the disciples would go different places, and there would be in Jerusalem, and someone else in Judea, and and, uh, word has it that the Apostle Thomas went down, spent time in India. But quite often, it is simply a place where we already happen to be. And so my question for us is this, what if he was sending you not to a place you've never been, but to a place you're already in? What if he, God, was sending you not to a place you've never been, but to a place you're already in? So if you think about your circles of influence, there is no circle of influence you can be in where something about the truth and glory and beauty of Jesus cannot be a blessing to people in situations you're already in. Let's look at a couple of the themes, okay? So first of all, hope is a theme of this verse. Why? Because Jesus is risen. Death is defeated. Despair, sin, darkness, all those things. Christ is actually risen. He stands vindicated and victorious. So this is fundamentally a story of hope. So you think about the situations that you are in in your life. There is no situation in which you will be where hope is not important. A second theme, peace be with you. He says it three times, verse 19, verse 21, verse 26. We are supposed to get the sense when something is repeated multiple times that we are to remember that fact. Peace, peace in life, peace amongst ourselves, peace with God. This is such a beautiful gift. There is no situation in which you will be in your circles of influence, in the places you are already in where peace is not going to be a blessing to people. Forgiveness is a major theme that we find here. Right? We also find you know, life and eternal life. I can that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so there is no situation where someone is not going to benefit from the life that Jesus has for us, not only in this life, quality of life, but duration after this life is over. And so what if God was sending you 
Not to a place where you've never been, but to a place you're already in. So I just want to encourage all of you to think about what are my circles of influence? Friends, family, your household, maybe it's at work, school, um, the volunteer board at the condo, uh, some people you volunteer with at the hospital. I don't know, whatever it happens to be. What if you were to be an ordinary missionary in a situation that you were already in? And we also need to keep in mind the fact that this has nothing to do with how great we are. None of us, are, none of us have it all together. We're all broken. I'm broken. We all have our own flaws that we're all wrestling with. But it's because what the Holy Spirit, he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit empowers and animates his people to go and do his work. Mark Patterson, who's a pastor in Washington, has a great way of saying it. He says, if you do little things like they're big things, God will do big things like they're little things. If you do little things like they're big things, God will do big things that are beyond our comprehension that one day we'll look back and say, wow, I can't believe how God worked in that situation. When I sought to speak a word of, of hope or forgiveness or of peace or of life in my circles of influence, he will do those things like they're little things. <laughs> so remember Fred Craddock? We started off with him. You know, his feet kind of dangling over the pew, listening to what it meant to live as a Christian, as a, as a, as a as servanthood and these great examples of sacrifice. Mother Teresa, Albert Schweitzer, Martin Luther King Jr. Of course, as he grew up, his, his understanding and his perspective expanded somewhat. He remembers being at a camp, a summer camp, sitting by the lake with candlelight singing, Are ye able? He went back to his bunk and he prayed to God, God, I am able. And as he went through his life, he realized that when it comes to his own servanthood, it wasn't just writing one big check with his life. And so he made like a financial uh, illustration. So he said, it's not just always about writing one big check, meaning, meaning it's not just about me just expending myself in one great cause all at once that's going to make the history books. He said, it's more like with my servanthood, with my life, with expending myself, it's more like on a daily basis, 21 cents here, 69 cents there, a dollar three here, 28 cents there. And so he would proactively look for opportunities to help, bless, provide peace, encourage someone in the situations in which he was already in. And so it is with us. What if he was sending you not to a place you've never been, but to a place you're already in? Be an ordinary missionary. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Amen.